Part Two of Mr. Humphreys and His Inheritance, a LibriVox recording by Peter Yearsley. Humphreys dined at eight, but for the fact that it was his first evening, and that Calton was evidently inclined for occasional conversation, he would have finished the novel he had brought for his journey. As it was, he had to listen and reply to some of Calton's impressions of the neighbourhood and the season. The latter, it appeared, was seasonable, and the former had changed considerably, and not altogether for the worse, since Calton's boyhood, which had been spent there. The village shop in particular had greatly improved since the year 1870. It was now possible to procure there pretty much anything you liked in reason, which was a conveniency, because suppose anything was required of a sudden, and he had known such things before now, he, Calton, could step down there, supposing the shop to be still open, and order it in without he borrowed it of the rectory whereas in earlier days it would have been useless to pursue such a course in respect of anything but candles, or soap, or treacle, or perhaps a penny child's picture-book. And nine times out of ten it'd be something more in the nature of a bottle of whisky you'd be requiring. Leastways. On the whole, Humphreys thought he would be prepared with a book in future. The library was the obvious place for the after-dinner hours. Candle in hand and pipe in mouth, he moved round the room for some time, taking stock of the titles of the books. He had all the predisposition to take interest in an old library, and there was every opportunity for him here to make systematic acquaintance with one, for he had learned from Cooper that there was no catalogue, save the very superficial one made for purposes of probate. The drawing up of a catalogue raison would be a delicious occupation for winter, there were probably treasures to be found, too, even manuscripts, if Cooper might be trusted. As he pursued his round, the sense came upon him, as it does upon most of us in similar places, of the extreme unreadableness of a great portion of the collection. Editions of classics and fathers and Picard's religious ceremonies and the Harleian miscellany, I suppose, are all very well, but... Who is ever going to read Tostatus Abulensis, or Pineda on Job, or a book like this? He picked out a small quarto, loose in the binding, and from which the lettered label had fallen off, and observing that coffee was waiting for him, retired to a chair. Eventually he opened the book. It will be observed that his condemnation of it rested wholly on external grounds. For all he knew, it might have been a collection of unique plays but undeniably the outside was blank and forbidding. As a matter of fact, it was a collection of sermons or meditations, and mutilated at that, for the first sheet was gone. It seemed to belong to the latter end of the seventeenth century. He turned over the pages till his eye was caught by a marginal note. A parable of this unhappy condition, and he thought he would see what aptitudes the author might have for imaginative composition. I have heard or read, so ran the passage, whether in the way of parable or true relation, I leave my reader to judge, of a man who, like Theseus in the Attic tale, should adventure himself into a labyrinth or maze, and such an one indeed as was not laid out in the fashion of our topiary artists of this age, but of a wide compass, 
in which, moreover, such unknown pitfalls and snares, nay, such ill-omened inhabitants, were commonly thought to lurk as could only be encountered at the hazard of one's very life. Now you may be sure that in such a case the dissuasions of friends were not wanting. Consider of such an one, says a brother, how he went the way you wot of, and was never seen more. Or of such another, says the mother, that adventured himself but a little way in, and from that day forth is so troubled in his wits, that he cannot tell what he saw, nor hath passed one good night. And have you never heard, cries a neighbour, of what faces have been seen to look out over the palisadoes, and betwixt the bars of the gate? But all would not do. The man was set upon his purpose, for it seems it was the common fireside talk of that country that at the heart and centre of this labyrinth there was a jewel of such price and rarity that would enrich the finder thereof for his life, and this should be his by right that could persevere to come at it. What then? Quid multa? The adventurer passed the gates, and for a whole day's space his friends without had no news of him, except it might be by some indistinct cries heard afar off in the night, such as made them turn in their restless beds and sweat for very fear, not doubting but that their son and brother had put one more to the catalogue of those unfortunates that had suffered shipwreck on that voyage. So the next day they went with weeping tears to the clerk of the parish to order the bell to be tolled, and their way took them hard by the gate of the labyrinth, which they would have hastened by from the horror they had of it, but that they caught sight of a sudden of a man's body lying in the roadway, and going up to it, with what anticipations may be easily figured, found it to be him whom they reckoned as lost, and not dead, though he were in a swoon most like death. They, then, who had gone forth as mourners, came back rejoicing, and set to by all means to revive their prodigal, who, being come to himself, and hearing of their anxieties and their errand of that morning, ay, says he, you may as well finish what you are about, for, for all I have brought back the jewel, which he showed them, and was indeed a rare piece, I have brought back that with it that will leave me neither rest at night nor pleasure by day whereupon they were instant with him to learn his meaning, and where his company should be that went so sore against his stomach. Oh, says he, tis here in my breast, I cannot flee from it, do what I may. So it needed no wizard to help them to a guess that it was the recollection of what he had seen that troubled him so wonderfully. But they could get no more of him for a long time but by fits and starts. However, at long and at last they made shift to collect somewhat of this kind, that at first, while the sun was bright, he went merrily on, and without any difficulty reached the heart of the labyrinth, and got the jewel, and so set out on his way back rejoicing. But as the night fell, wherein all the beasts of the forests do move, he began to be sensible of some creature keeping pace with him, and, as he thought, peering and looking upon him from the next alley to that he was in, and that when he should stop, this companion should stop also. 
which put him in some disorder of his spirits. And indeed, as the darkness increased, it seemed to him that there was more than one, and it might be even a whole band of such followers, at least so he judged by the rustling and cracking that they kept among the thickets. Besides that, there would be at a time a sound of whispering, which seemed to import a conference among them. But in regard of who they were, or what form they were of, he would not be persuaded to say what he thought. Upon his hearers asking him what the cries were which they heard in the night, as was observed above, he gave them this account, that about midnight, so far as he could judge, he heard his name called from a long way off, and he would have been sworn it was his brother that so called him. So he stood still and hallooed at the pitch of his voice, and he supposed that the echo or the noise of his shouting disguised for the moment any lesser sound, because when there fell a stillness again he distinguished a trampling, not loud, of running feet coming very close behind him, wherewith he was so daunted that himself set off to run, and that he continued till the dawn broke. Sometimes when his breath failed him he would cast himself flat on his face, and hope that his pursuers might overrun him in the darkness, but at such a time they would regularly make a pause, and he could hear them pant and snuff as it had been a hound at fault, which wrought in him so extreme an horror of mind that he would be forced to betake himself again to turning and doubling, if by any means he might throw them off the scent. And, as if this exertion was in itself not terrible enough, he had before him the constant fear of falling into some pit or trap, of which he had heard, and indeed seen with his own eyes that there were several, some at the sides, and other in the midst of the alleys, so that, in fine, he said, a more dreadful night was never spent by mortal creature than that he had endured in that labyrinth, and not that jewel which he had in his wallet, nor the richest that was ever brought out of the Indies, could be a sufficient recompense to him for the pains he had suffered. I will spare to set down the further recital of this man's troubles, inasmuch as I am confident my reader's intelligence will hit the parallel I desire to draw. For is not this jewel a just emblem of the satisfaction which a man may bring back with him from a course of this world's pleasures? And will not the labyrinth serve for an image of the world itself, wherein such a treasure, if we may believe the common voice, is stored up? At about this point Humphreys thought that a little patience would be an agreeable change, and that the writer's improvement of his parable might be left to itself. So he put the book back in its former place, wondering as he did so whether his uncle had ever stumbled across that passage, and if so, whether it had worked on his fancy so much as to make him dislike the idea of a maze, and determine to shut up the one in the garden. Not long afterwards he went to bed. The next day brought a morning's hard work with Mr. Cooper, who, if exuberant in language, had the business of the estate at his fingers' ends. He was very breezy this morning, Mr. Cooper was, had not forgotten the order to clear out the maze. The work was going on at that moment. His girl was on the tentacles of expectation about it. He also hoped that Humphreys had slept the sleep of the just, and that we should be favoured with a continuance of this congenial weather 
At luncheon he enlarged on the pictures in the dining-room, and pointed out the portrait of the constructor of the temple and the maze. Humphreys examined this with considerable interest. It was the work of an Italian, and had been painted when old Mr. Wilson was visiting Rome as a young man. There was, indeed, a view of the Colosseum in the background. A pale, thin face and large eyes were the characteristic features. In the hand was a partially unfolded roll of paper, on which could be distinguished the plan of a circular building, very probably the temple, and also part of that of a labyrinth. Humphreys got up on a chair to examine it, but it was not painted with sufficient clearness to be worth copying. It suggested to him, however, that he might as well make a plan of his own maze, and hang it in the hall for the use of visitors. This determination of his was confirmed that same afternoon, for when Mrs. and Miss Cooper arrived, eager to be inducted into the maze, he found that he was wholly unable to lead them to the centre. The gardeners had removed the guide-marks they had been using, and even Clutterham, when summoned to assist, was as helpless as the rest. "'The point is, you see, Mr. Wilson, I should say Humphreys, these mazes is purposely constructed so much alike with a view to mislead. Still, if you'll follow me, I think I can put you right. I'll just put my hat down here as a starting point.' He stumped off, and after five minutes brought the party safe to the hat again. "'Now that's a very peculiar thing,' he said with a sheepish laugh. I made sure I'd left that at just over against a bramble-bush, and you can see for yourself there ain't no bramble-bush not in this walk at all. If you'll allow me, Mr. Humphreys, that's the name in it, sir, I'll just call one of the men in to mark the place like. William Crack arrived, in answer to repeated shouts. He had some difficulty in making his way to the party. First he was seen or heard in an inside alley, then almost at the same moment in an outer one. However, he joined them at last, and was first consulted without effect, and then stationed by the hat, which Clutterham still considered it necessary to leave on the ground. In spite of this strategy, they spent the best part of three-quarters of an hour in quite fruitless wanderings, and Humphreys was obliged at last, seeing how tired Mrs. Cooper was becoming, to suggest a retreat to tea, with profuse apologies to Miss Cooper. "'At any rate you've won your bet with Miss Foster,' he said. "'You have been inside the maze, and I promise you the first thing I do shall be to make a proper plan of it with the lines marked out for you to go by.' "'That's what's wanted, sir,' said Clutterham. "'Someone to draw out a plan and keep it by them. It might be very awkward, you see, anyone getting into that place and a shower of rain come on, and them not able to find their way out again.' It might be hours before they could be got out, without you'd permit of me making a short cut to the middle. What my meaning is, taking down a couple of trees in each edge, in a straight line, so you could get a clear view right through. Of course, that'd do away with it as a maze, but I don't know as you'd approve of that. No, I won't have that done yet. I'll make a plan first, and let you have a copy. Later on, if we find occasion, I'll think of what you say. Humphreys was vexed and ashamed at the fiasco of the afternoon, and could not be satisfied without making another effort that evening to reach the centre of the maze. His irritation was increased by finding it without a single false step. He had thoughts of beginning his plan at once, but the light was fading, and he felt that by the time he had got the necessary materials together, work would be impossible. 
Next morning, accordingly, carrying a drawing-board, pencils, compasses, cartridge-paper, and so forth, some of which had been borrowed from the coopers and some found in the library cupboards, he went to the middle of the maze, again without any hesitation, and set out his materials. He was, however, delayed in making a start. The brambles and weeds that had obscured the column and globe were now all cleared away, and it was for the first time possible to see clearly what these were like. The column was featureless, resembling those on which sundials are usually placed. Not so the globe. I have said that it was finely engraved with figures and inscriptions, and that, on a first glance, Humphreys had taken it for a celestial globe, but he soon found that it did not answer to his recollection of such things. One feature seemed familiar. A winged serpent, Draco, encircled it about the place which on a terrestrial globe is occupied by the equator. But on the other hand, a good part of the upper hemisphere was covered by the outspread wings of a large figure whose head was concealed by a ring at the pole or summit of the hole. Around the place of the head, the words Princeps Tenebrarum could be deciphered. Reader's note, Princeps Tenebrarum is the Prince of Darkness. End of reader's note. In the lower hemisphere there was a space hatched all over with cross-lines and marked as Umbra Mortis. Reader's note, the shadow of death. End of reader's note. Near it was a range of mountains, and among them a valley with flames rising from it. This was lettered, will you be surprised to learn it, Valis Filiorum Hinum. Reader's note, the valley of the sons of Gehenna. End of reader's note. Above and below Draco were outlined various figures not unlike the pictures of the ordinary constellations, but not the same. Thus a nude man with a raised club was described not as Hercules, but as Cain. Another, plunged up to his middle in earth and stretching out despairing arms, was Corey, not Ophiuchus, and a third, hung by his hair to a snaky tree, was Absalon. Near the last, a man in long robes and high cap, standing in a circle and addressing two shaggy demons who hovered outside, was described as Hostanes Magus, a character unfamiliar to Humphreys. Reader's note, Hostanes Magus is Hostanes, the mage of Xerxes, king of Persia. End of reader's note. The scheme of the whole, indeed, seemed to be an assemblage of the patriarchs of evil, perhaps not uninfluenced by a study of Dante. Humphreys thought it an unusual exhibition of his great-grandfather's taste, but reflected that he had probably picked it up in Italy, and had never taken the trouble to examine it closely. Certainly, had he set much store by it, he would not have exposed it to wind and weather. He tapped the metal. It seemed hollow and not very thick and, turning from it, addressed himself to his plan. After half an hour's work, he found it was impossible to get on without using a clue, so he procured a roll of twine from Clutterham, and laid it out along the alleys from the entrance to the centre, tying the end to the ring at the top of the globe. This expedient helped him to set out a rough plan before luncheon, and in the afternoon he was able to draw it in more neatly. Towards tea-time Mr. Cooper joined him, and was much interested in his progress. "'Now this,' 
said Mr. Cooper, laying his hand on the globe, and then drawing it away hastily. Whew! Holds the heat, doesn't it, to a surprising degree, Mr. Humphreys. I suppose this metal—copper, isn't it?—would be an insulator, or conductor, or whatever they call it. The sun has been pretty strong this afternoon, said Humphreys, evading the scientific point. But I didn't notice the globe had got hot. No, it doesn't seem very hot to me, he added. Odd, said Mr. Cooper. Now I can't hardly bear my hand on it. Something in the difference of temperament between us, I suppose. I dare say you're a chilly subject, Mr. Humphreys. I'm not, and that's where the distinction lies. All this summer I've slept, if you'll believe me, practically in statu quo, and had my morning tub as cold as I could get it, day out and day in. Let me assist you with that string. It's all right, thanks, but if you'll collect some of these pencils and things that are lying about, I shall be much obliged. Now, I think we've got everything, and we might get back to the house. They left the maze, Humphreys rolling up the clue as they went. The night was rainy. Most unfortunately it turned out that, whether by Cooper's fault or not, the plan had been the one thing forgotten the evening before. As was to be expected, it was ruined by the wet. There was nothing for it but to begin again. The job would not be a long one this time. The clue, therefore, was put in place once more, and a fresh start made. But Humphreys had not done much before an interruption came in the shape of Calton with a telegram. His late chief in London wanted to consult him. Only a brief interview was wanted, but the summons was urgent. This was annoying, yet it was not really upsetting. There was a train available in half an hour, and, unless things went very cross, he could be back possibly by five o'clock, certainly by eight. He gave the plan to Calton to take to the house, but it was not worth while to remove the clue. All went as he had hoped. He spent a rather exciting evening in the library, for he lighted to-night upon a cupboard where some of the rarer books were kept. When he went up to bed, he was glad to find that the servant had remembered to leave his curtains undrawn and his windows open. He put down his light and went to the window which commanded a view of the garden and the park. It was a brilliant moonlit night. In a few weeks' time the sonorous winds of autumn would break up all this calm. But now the distant woods were in a deep stillness. The slopes of the lawns were shining with dew. The colours of some of the flowers could almost be guessed. The light of the moon just caught the cornice of the temple and the curve of its leaden dome. And Humphreys had to own that, so seen, these conceits of a past age have a real beauty. In short, the light, the perfume of the woods, and the absolute quiet called up such kind old associations in his mind that he went on ruminating them for a long, long time. As he turned from the window, he felt he had never seen anything more complete of its sort. The one feature that struck him with a sense of incongruity was a small Irish yew, thin and black which stood out like an outpost of the shrubbery through which the maze was approached. That, he thought, might as well be a way. The wonder was that anyone should have thought it would look well in that position. However, next morning, in the press of answering letters and going over books with Mr. Cooper, the Irish U was forgotten. One letter, by the way, arrived this day, which has to be mentioned. It was from that Lady Wardrop, 
whom Miss Cooper had mentioned, and it renewed the application which she had addressed to Mr. Wilson. She pleaded, in the first place, that she was about to publish a book of mazes, and earnestly desired to include the plan of the Wilsthorpe maze, and also that it would be a great kindness if Mr. Humphreys could let her see it, if at all, at an early date, since she would soon have to go abroad for the winter months. Her house at Bentley was not far distant, so Humphreys was able to send a note by hand to her, suggesting the very next day, or the day after, for her visit. It may be said at once that the messenger brought back a most grateful answer to the effect that the morrow would suit her admirably. The only other event of the day was that the plan of the maze was successfully finished. This night again was fair and brilliant and calm, and Humphreys lingered almost as long at his window. The Irish yew came to his mind again as he was on the point of drawing his curtains, but either he had been misled by a shadow the night before, or else the shrub was not really so obtrusive as he had fancied. Anyhow, he saw no reason for interfering with it. What he would do away with, however, was a clump of dark growth which had usurped a place against the house wall, and was threatening to obscure one of the lower range of windows. It did not look as if it could possibly be worth keeping. He fancied it dank and unhealthy, little as he could see of it. Next day, it was a Friday, he had arrived at Wilsthorpe on a Monday, Lady Wardrop came over in her car soon after luncheon. She was a stout, elderly person, very full of talk of all sorts, and particularly inclined to make herself agreeable to Humphreys, who had gratified her very much by his ready granting of her request. They made a thorough exploration of the place together, and Lady Wardrop's opinion of her host obviously rose sky-high when she found that he really knew something of gardening. She entered enthusiastically into all his plans for improvement, but agreed that it would be a vandalism to interfere with the characteristic laying out of the ground near the house. With the temple she was particularly delighted, and said she, "'Do you know, Mr. Humphreys, I think your bailiff must be right about those lettered blocks of stone. One of my mazes—I'm sorry to say the stupid people have destroyed it now—it was at a place in Hampshire, had the track marked out in that way. There were tiles there, but lettered just like yours, and the letters, taken in the right order, formed an inscription. What it was, I forget, something uh, about Theseus and Ariadne. I have a copy of it, as well as the plan of the maze where it was. How people can do such things! I shall never forgive you if you injure your maze. Do you know they're becoming very uncommon? Almost every year I hear of one being grubbed up. Now, do let's get straight to it or if you're too busy, I know my way there perfectly, and I'm not afraid of getting lost in it, I know too much about mazes for that. Though I remember missing my lunch not so very long ago, either, through getting entangled in the one at Busbury. Well, of course, if you can manage to come with me, that will be all the nicer. After this confident prelude, justice would seem to require that Lady Wardrop should have been hopelessly muddled by the Wilsthorpe maze. Nothing of that kind happened. Yet it is to be doubted whether she got all the enjoyment from her new specimen that she expected. She was interested, keenly interested, to be sure, and pointed out to Humphreys a series of little depressions in the ground, which, she thought, marked the places of the lettered blocks. She told him, too, what other mazes resembled his most closely in arrangement, 
and explained how it was usually possible to date a maze to within twenty years by means of its plan. This one, she already knew, must be about as old as 1780, and its features were just what might be expected. The globe, furthermore, completely absorbed her. It was unique in her experience, and she pored over it for long. "'I should like a rubbing of that,' she said, "'if it could possibly be made. Yes, I am sure you would be most kind about it, Mr. Humphreys, but I trust you won't attempt it on my account. I do, indeed. I should not like to take any liberties here. I have the feeling that it might be resented. Now, confess,' she went on, turning and facing Humphreys, "'Don't you feel, haven't you felt ever since you came in here, that a watch is being kept on us, and that if we overstepped the mark in any way there would be a, well, a pounce? No? I do, and I don't care how soon we are outside the gate.' "'After all,' she said, when they were once more on their way to the house, "'it may have been only the airlessness and the dull heat of that place that pressed on my brain.' Still, I'll take back one thing I said. I'm not sure that I shan't forgive you after all if I find next spring that that maze has been grubbed up. Whether or no that's done, you shall have the plan, Lady Wardrop. I have made one, and no later than tonight I can trace your copy. Admirable. A pencil tracing will be all I want, with an indication of the scale. I can easily have it brought into line with the rest of my plates. Many, many thanks. Very well. You shall have that to-morrow. I wish you could help me to a solution of my block-puzzle. What, those stones in the summer-house? That is a puzzle. They are in no sort of order? Of course not. But the men who put them down must have had some directions. Perhaps you'll find a paper about it among your uncle's things. If not, you'll have to call in somebody who's an expert in ciphers. Advise me about something else, please, said Humphreys. That bush thing under the library window— you would have that away, wouldn't you? Which? That? Oh, I think not, said Lady Wardrop. I can't see it very well from this distance, but it's not unsightly. Perhaps you're right. Only, looking out of my window just above it last night, I thought it took up too much room. It doesn't seem to as one sees it from here, certainly. Very well. I'll leave it alone for a bit. Tea was the next business. Tea was the next business, soon after which Lady Wardrop drove off, but halfway down the drive she stopped the car and beckoned to Humphreys, who was still on the front door steps. He ran to glean her parting words, which were, "'It just occurs to me it might be worth your while to look at the underside of those stones. They must have been numbered, mustn't they? Good-bye again. Home, please.' The main occupation of this evening, at any rate, was settled, the tracing of the plan for Lady Wardrop, and the careful collation of it with the original, meant a couple of hours' work at least. Accordingly, soon after nine, Humphreys had his materials put out in the library, and began. It was a still, stuffy evening, windows had to stand open, and he had more than one grisly encounter with a bat. These unnerving episodes made him keep the tail of his eye on the window. Once or twice it was a question whether there was not a bat, but something more considerable, that had a mind to join him. How unpleasant it would be if someone had slipped noiselessly over the sill and was crouching on the floor. 
The tracing of the plan was done. It remained to compare it with the original, and to see whether any paths had been wrongly closed or left open. With one finger on each paper he traced out the course that must be followed from the entrance. There were one or two slight mistakes, but here near the centre was a bad confusion, probably due to the entry of the second or third bat. Before correcting the copy he followed out carefully the last turnings of the path on the original. These at least were right. They led without a hitch to the middle space. Here was a feature which need not be repeated on the copy, an ugly black spot about the size of a shilling. Ink? No. It resembled a hole, but how should a hole be here? He stared at it with tired eyes. The work of tracing had been very laborious, and he was drowsy and oppressed. But surely this was a very odd hole. It seemed to go not only through the paper, but through the table on which it lay. Yes, and through the floor below that, down and still down, even into infinite depths. He craned over it, utterly bewildered. Just as, when you were a child, you may have pored over a square inch of counterpane until it became a landscape with wooded hills, and perhaps even churches and houses, and you lost all thought of the true size of yourself and it, so this hole seemed to Humphreys for the moment the only thing in the world. For some reason it was hateful to him from the first, but he had gazed at it for some moments before any feeling of anxiety came upon him, and then it did come, stronger and stronger, a horror lest something might emerge from it, and a really agonizing conviction that a terror was on its way, from the sight of which he would not be able to escape. Oh, yes, far, far down there was a movement, and the movement was upwards, towards the surface. Nearer and nearer it came, and it was of a blackish-grey colour, with more than one dark hole. It took shape as a face, a human face, a burnt human face, and with the odious writhings of a wasp creeping out of a rotten apple there clambered forth an appearance of a form, waving black arms, prepared to clasp the head that was bending over them. With a convulsion of despair, Humphreys threw himself back, struck his head against a hanging lamp, and fell. There was concussion of the brain, shock to the system, and a long confinement to bed. The doctor was badly puzzled, not by the symptoms, but by a request which Humphreys made to him as soon as he was able to say anything. "'I wish you would open the ball in the maze.' "'Hardly enough room there, I should have thought,' was the best answer he could summon up. "'But it's more in your way than mine. My dancing days are over.' At which Humphreys muttered and turned over to sleep, and the doctor intimated to the nurses that the patient was not out of the wood yet. When he was better able to express his views, Humphreys made his meaning clear, and received a promise that the thing should be done at once. He was so anxious to learn the result that the doctor, who seemed a little pensive next morning, saw that more harm than good would be done by saving up his report. "'Well,' he said, "'I am afraid the ball is done for. The metal must have worn thin, I suppose. Anyhow, it went all to bits with the first blow of the chisel.' "'Well, go on, do,' said Humphreys impatiently. "'Oh, you want to know what we found in it, of course. "'Well, it was half full of stuff like ashes.' "'Ashes? What did you make of them?' "'I haven't thoroughly examined them yet. 
there's hardly been time. But Cooper's made up his mind, I dare say from something I said, that it's a case of cremation. Now don't excite yourself, my good sir. Yes, I must allow, I think, he's probably right. The maze is gone, and Lady Wardrop has forgiven Humphreys. In fact, I believe he married her niece. She was right, too, in her conjecture that the stones in the temple were numbered. There had been a numeral painted on the bottom of each. Some few of these had rubbed off, but enough remained to enable Humphreys to reconstruct the inscription. It ran thus, Penetrans ad interiora mortis. Reader's Note Penetrating into the interior places of death. End of Reader's Note Grateful as Humphreys was to the memory of his uncle, he could not quite forgive him for having burnt the journals and letters of the James Wilson who had gifted Wilsthorpe with the maze and the temple. As to the circumstances of that ancestor's death and burial, no tradition survived. But his will, which was almost the only record of him accessible, assigned an unusually generous legacy to a servant who bore an Italian name. Mr. Cooper's view is that, humanly speaking, all these many solemn events have a meaning for us, if our limited intelligence permitted of our disintegrating it. While Mr. Calton has been reminded of an aunt now gone from us, who, about the year 1866, had been lost for upwards of an hour and a half in the maze at Covent Gardens, or it might be Hampton Court. One of the oddest things in the whole series of transactions is that the book which contained the parable has entirely disappeared. Humphreys has never been able to find it since he copied out the passage to send to Lady Wardrop. The End of Mr. Humphreys and His Inheritance From Ghost Stories of an Antiquary And the End of That Book by M. R. James